Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here. Welcome to the Daily Evolver. And a special welcome to those of you I can see here live, many of whom I know, and it's great to see you and spend this part of a beautiful Wednesday afternoon with you. Uh, today, I wanted to look at the evolution of the culture and for all of its you know, ups and downs and dignities and disasters. And uh, so what I wanted to do today is, first of all, just share a little bit about what's happening for me and what I'm paying attention to and how I'm really amazed. <laughs> I know, you know, theoretically, uh, culture accelerates as it continues to evolve. Uh, if we look at the stages, you know, they're uh, by magnitudes less for each stage. But just how fast uh, cultural and consciousness evolution is happening. And in my own experience, I would say that the center of that for me has been my experience with Twitter, uh, now X, and how it has enabled me to move from the stage that I was at, which was like most of us, mainstream media, you know, uh, and also the blogs and podcasts and all of the good stuff on the internet, to a social media experience of all of that, which is a classic include and transcend move. It's like when I'm on Twitter, very often I am directed through a link to something on the mainstream media. And not only do I get to read it, I get to know a bit about it before I click. I get to know uh, somebody's experience of it, why they're posting it. And then I, if I want, there's three feet of comments of people who are, debunking it or praising it or interpreting it in some ways. And it is indeed a multi-perspective factory. I want to point out that, you know, evolutionarily, it's really nothing new in terms of the, the great principles of emergence, which is that new levels of complexity arise out of less complex levels in first, second, and third person. And this is the, the latest in the evolving collective intelligence or media verse uh, that has a lineage back to smoke signals, <laughs> you know, that were probably very cool for the first person, people who figured them out. And hieroglyphics, you know, the printing press was a biggie. And all of them bring forth new territory of where humans can live and uh, inhabit new levels of consciousness, new territories of culture. And the, the very realization of this, this, that there is an evolving structure in first, second, and third person is itself a marker for the next stage that we're growing into, which is the integral stage of consciousness, which comes out of post-modernity and seeks to include, to integrate the best of the previous stages. So that is... Um, so that's what's happening. That's part of my experience. And then the question is, so what could go wrong with this? And there's lots that goes wrong. There's With every stage of development, there's a whole new territory of the bad stuff that comes online as well. Um, and, you know, I've done many podcasts and that sort of thing. But today I'm going to turn our attention to one of the critics of the new mediaverse, Jonathan Haidt who is well-regarded in the integral community. I regard him very highly myself. And uh, he ha has done a, a very 
significant article, and I think there's a book coming out, but this is a podcast from a podcast that he did on the subject of why America is uniquely stupid. And this was, again, an Atlantic article about a year ago, and this is a, a recent podcast from it. And he's going to talk about how he sees, you know, this downside of this new emergence. So I'm going to share my screen. Distributed networks are, are excellent at tearing down, but they're very bad at building up. And so what's happened, it's not just that like everyone has a voice on blogs and podcasts, everyone can publish their own paper, paper that's great. It's, there will never again be the possibility of any shared understanding of anything. Um, so, you know, 9-11 was probably the last time when we had some sense of national consciousness. Um, I would say the slap was the other one. Um, you know, everybody, you know, the slap at the Oscars or whatever, it was like everybody, <laughs> like everybody saw it, everybody heard about it but it was just a reason for fighting. It wasn't the same. So, you know, we can have these brief stupid yeah. moments of shared stupidity, but they don't bring us together. They divide us. 9-11 is probably the last time yeah. we had any you know, real sense of shared, shared consciousness. Um, so, yeah. So he's talking about distributed networks being social media, good at tearing down, bad at building up. And his statement that there will never again be any possibility of any shared understanding of anything. The last one being 9-11 or the slap where uh, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock and the Oscars. So let me critique his critique and you know, see where we get. Uh, first of all, it's not like humanity's shared understandings have always been particularly to the good, especially when they're allowed to manifest without any opposition. And I mean, really, if you look at the horrors of history, they're all perpetrated by people who shared an understanding. So that's not an end in itself. And actually, 9-11 is a perfect example. 9-11 led to two wars uh, that went on for a generation. The last one just ended a couple of years ago. And um, it created a surveillance state that many criticize. I don't have a, as big a problem with it as many do because I trust modernity and the um, sensibilities of modern people and governments. But... I do note that that is a consequence of this shared understanding about 9-11. The idea that it's good at tearing down but not building, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that. It's building the virtual world as a thing. You know, it's got its institutions, it's got its means of education and communication and entertainment. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, for those of us who understand this word, it's the building of the noosphere. And also the uh, uh, the augmentation of the building of this physiosphere in, in enormous ways. Concrete operations are much more efficient with the internet, social media, and all of it. So it's the sum total of what humans are able to see and relate to, and we we learn that that I mean we fail forward. It's one of the things that you know one of the ways we can characterize emergence. And 9-11 is a perfect example of it, as is the slap, actually. First of all, it's not like Hollywood act actors never took a swipe at each other in the past. So, you know, a lot of them were famous brawlers. We just don't, which wasn't on the Oscars beam to a billion people. You know, there is that difference. But I, you know, was it a, I mean, wasn't there a pretty universal condemnation of Will Smith, honestly, from that? I mean, and you know, an agreement that fisticuffs is not the way to deal with conflict. So, you know, I wouldn't agree with that even. I think it was a teaching moment for a lot of people. And 
you know, the idea of human beings taking sides, you know, if only, if only we could go back to those good old days when people didn't take sides in a fight. You know, when was that? What, 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 what's he talking about there? And, you know, I think he falls into, and he does it in all, all of his work, in my opinion, and a lot of people do. I do. Everybody does, I guess, in a certain way. Uh, but it's sort of the corollary to presentism, where you judge everything by present values. Only this is, I don't know what to call it, but something like 20-somethingism. And that's the idea that the world was best when I was in my early 20s. And that's a pretty universal kind of download that people get. So yeah, so anyway, there is there is a new phase shift in the way that people understand things and in the way that we share our understanding. And again, I would say that the characteristic or one of the ways of describing this would be that we are becoming multi-perspectival. And that means we're not only getting smarter, but we're getting wiser. And this is my pet theory of this is how I think it works, is that when you take multiple perspectives, it's like when you get one of those wire hangers and you keep bending it back and forth, it just weakens the, you know, and the, the finally it breaks. And there's something like that that happens when you take perspectives that are alien to your native perspective. And you really let it in and you work with it as a perspective, as a practice. And you try to understand how could people say that? How could they think that? And you really, you know, as a question, not just a complaint. And as you do that, there's a phase shift of consciousness where you begin to identify not with your native perspective any longer, but maybe you still do somewhat, but you literally expand to a greater sense space of identity that holds more than one perspective. And you can keep adding them as you go. And you realize at some point, and this is the, this is the trust move, that that space itself, this new territory, is itself intelligent and loving. And when the time comes to make a decision or to operationalize a perspective, the right one comes to you because you hold four or five. And the best one can will just show up out of the wisdom of the thing that we're all evolving into. So in real time, that feels like it's only destructive and not creative. You know, that it's good at tearing down, but not building up. It feels like confusion and alarm. It feels like the rug has been pulled out. There's no solid place to stand. It's what Trumpa Rinpoche always used to talk about. Don't think there's any solid place to stand in Buddhism. He's transmitting that. Because there isn't. And it's crazy, and it's dangerous, and we're all going to die. And, you know, that's true. And evolution, apparently likes us to feel this way. You know, evolution doesn't want us to be comfortable or to have things figured out. It wants us to be confused and alarmed. I, I mean, I think, you know, my new theory is that this is a hell planet for a much nicer planet. But, you know, I don't know how you're going to explain it, but that's, that's a thing. So, you know, what we want to do is to do what we did with real violence, you know, in the not virtual world, back in the day, and try to organize it into sport, into play. 
So Namali and I were talking about this yesterday. She was talking about when she t did her uh, spiral dynamics on red. And, you know, red gets a bad rap because it's violent and egocentric and all of that good stuff. The other thing it is, it's fun. You know, it's playful. And that's so we want to do that. And that's happening. I mean, I see it online and on, on you know, in my little Twitterverse is that there's arenas that are created and you can opt in or opt out. You can watch or you can get in the arena. You can keep people from getting in your arena. You can block them or mute them. And that's just what an opportunity that is. My goodness, because human beings do fight our way forward. We also friend our way forward. A lot of that going on. But one of the things that you learn is how to take a punch. It's like what you would learn if you were learning how to box. You know, <laughs> Mike Tyson, who said, everybody's got a plan till they get punched in the face. <laughs> uh, so it's something like that. And, um, you know, I mean, it's like my, my friend Maria talks about it. It's like, do you care if you get called a poo-poo head by a six-year-old? You know, at some point, it's just like, okay, you got your opinion, whatever. And there's something, there's some, there's growth to that because human beings are still very, this is that second person, you know, we're, we're under the wet blanket of the collective, you know, and they're sticking our head out is dangerous. And that's always been true. It's less true now than ever. And, um, and it will be less and less true as we just get playful with all of the stuff that we have to fight about. And also, at the same time, I think there's something to be said, and this is where I really appreciate Jonathan Haidt and his work, and that is uh, the idea of, of bringing some intelligence and love to how all of this affects kids and young people. And, you know, kids don't understand the arena. They, they need to be educated in it, and, you know, and they are, they're self-educating in it like crazy. But all of it, you know, whether it's the, the judgments or the uh, porn or you know, the, all of the stuff that leads to the depression and anxiety, which is, you know, uh, characteristic. I think it's characteristic of teenage in general. It's just that they have a means to talk about it. I, I would have described myself that way in when I was a teenager. But anyway, yeah, we have to take into a, a account how it affects the kids. So imagine that we could, knowing what we know now, go back 25 years and redo the internet to avoid the worst of what Jonathan Haidt and many others are talking about. Uh, I don't know exactly how we would do that, but it would be, if we knew what, what we know now then, we I'm sure would have done it differently. That's how human beings work, but we can't do that. But fortunately we can do better when we're faced with the next big thing which is the uh, emergence of artificial intelligence. And uh, that's the next thing I wanted to talk about is that there's a lot of really smart visionary, excuse me, visionary people who are, you know, trying to think it through before it just comes online and takes over or whatever it's going to do. And there was a panel uh, just two days ago on Monday where Elon Musk the chief visionary, uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, and then two experts in the field, uh, the founder of OpenAI, Greg Brockman, 
and uh, Max Tregmark, who is a, uh, a physicist and uh, machine learning expert at MIT, the four of them, did a panel uh, on, what did they call it? Um, the AI safety panel. And, you know, it's funny, Elon Musk is a very polarizing figure, and um, he doesn't seem to care, <laughs> which I appreciate, but liberals just instinctively hate him, you know, and all of my liberal friends just hate him. Uh, I fear him. <laughs> I'm not sure I hate him. The mainstream media really doesn't like Elon, partly because it's liberal and partly because he's changing the business model. And making them less relevant, and you know, you know, as I just described, it's an include and transcend kind of thing. I, I did want to just highlight one uh, short clip from this four-way panel, and this is Max Tegman, who is the MIT guy, and he's talking about the danger. Talking about, you know, actually, they're very pro-regulation. Maybe Elon Elon talks about regulation as an important thing. He also voted for Biden last time, just for the record. Um, so uh, they're talking about what can we do to stave off the worst consequences of AI. Very good discussion, but there was a there's there's some there's a missing piece to me, uh, and I'll share this and then we can talk about it. So this is again Max Tegman from MIT talking about the dangers of AI. Now we've done this experiment before when a new species showed up on the planet that was smarter than all the other ones and uh, what happened was the neanderthals went extinct if we just very passively go into this i think it's very likely humans will go extinct also i, I think that's and i think that's the wrong attitude i think the analogous question is how do we make sure that with this ever more powerful tech it's we who control the ai rather than the other way around right can't argue with that last part i might might argue with the first part though and this is one of the things that, you know, this is my integral view. One of the great contributions of Ken Wilber is this, this idea of, you know, first, second, and third person is the back pocket definition, but quadrants, the, the idea of interiority and exteriority and be, the individual and collective, and that these are irreducible dimensions of reality, and that AI is a function of words, thoughts, concepts, ideology, it's all of it, but all of this is the word. It's it's all in the world of form. It's in the it's in the world of exteriority, thoughts, mind, all of that's in the world of exteriority, not interiority. Interiority is the, the the emptiness, which is sort of the absence or negation of all of it, and this is where consciousness resides, um, and that creativity of the. Uh, of the cosmos that I talked about, the love and creativity, this this open space of awareness that out of which thoughts arise. So AI will never have that. It doesn't have it and it won't have it uh, unless it is a um, an augmentation. And, and there, they actually talked about this too. This is another one of Elon Musk's companies, Neuralink, which is working on the connection between thinking and information and you know calling up thought and 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 so forth using it now for people who, with paralysis and so forth just hooking the brain up but and so if you get augmented humans and you're starting with human consciousness which is part of the holonic chain and consciousness came into being with the big bang just like material did um then you're talking about you know a whole new thing but it's not it is ai is not uh, achieving general intelligence
That's that's the hard problem of consciousness. And there's a lot of people who are really, this is again, what uh, I'm learning from Twitter that it feels like I couldn't have learned this before. There's a, a big brouhaha on Twitter right now about this nature of consciousness. And there's a, a letter that was signed by, I guess, 120 consciousness researchers that called integrated information theory a pseudoscience. And so the people in the integrated information theory, which I don't exactly understand, but it postulates that there's an underlying substrate to consciousness that is something other than what we normally think of as physics. So, you know, I don't know if it's in the world of form or the world of emptiness, but a uh, hundred some scientists signed a statement saying that it's pseudoscience. Uh, a lot of people, big names, criticized the letter, lots of arguments back and forth that were very illuminating still escapes me in a certain way, but far more illuminated than I was before. And it's something, if you're interested, uh, you know, I would go check it out, integrated information theory. And at one point it got all personal and somebody insulted, and one of the big guys insulted another one, and then they apologized, and there was this warm kumbaya moment. And that all happens in real time. So I'm all in. All right. Well, um, why don't we take a, a little time to talk about it? And the question would be, how do you experience yourself in the virtual world? What's your relationship to the virtual world? Uh, and, um, you know, plus, minus, however you want to talk about it. And maybe you haven't entered the virtual world, which would also be interesting. But I think most of us have. Hey, Jeff. Hi, team. How are we? I'll keep it, I'll keep it short. I haven't even yeah, done good. my head this morning, uh, Jeff. So I'm living in my own virtual reality already. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's any separation between, you know, virtual and physical. In my life, I can't recall a time of, of separation between the two. You know, we had long distance phone calls. I'm 45. Mm -hmm. We had long distance phone calls in those days. But just in more sort of, you know, grounded terms, to me, there's no difference between an image that I can conjure in my mind and the image that I have of my physical reality right now. Mm -hmm. We only see 2% of the world. So we're a dreamer in a dream in any case, because we don't see truth. We don't see reality. So, you know, I, I see there as being no separation. And then, you know, as we elevate our altitude in, in the integral or spiral ladder or whatever we like to call it, you know, we see that more clearly, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't argue with that. I, I would say that what is happening is that the, um, the space that one has with another person, uh, is just continues to expand and it's you know we're talking from tribal to empires to you know traditional to modern and now with uh postmodern and integral uh social media it's virtually if you will anybody in the world that you can find the needle in the haystack and communicate with at, at, at scale and that's different that's that's the different part of it and each of those stages brings forth a new kind of uh you know world basically. And, you know, I think it's just a useful distinction that I have friends there that I don't have in the physical world. And I have certainly have conversations there, uh, like we're having right now, that I wouldn't have in the virtual world. And that is, that's a new ball game to me. So, totally you know. But totally agree with you. Yeah. And I, I would just add to it, though, that, you know, John Cabot zeno I always keep that quote firmly in my mind, wherever you go, there you are. 
And so, you know, you are the the central thing in everything in your life. Yeah. Um, so far as it's been birthed from awareness. And so, you know, one of the things in the we space that I just like to focus on is, you know, I've got a beautiful relationship with uh, uh, a coach that, that works with me. And, you know, we, we just use all of this for shadow work because whatever meaning we're making of whether it's AI, VR, you know, whatever the next technology or social thing is that's arising, it's just giving us an opportunity to look at our shadows. The reality of it is that humans created AI and AI is a reflection of um, both our content and our shadows. It's just, yeah. It's, yeah, you know, well said. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Jeff. All right, yeah, Phyllis. Mine is sort of a little bit of a story about how the virtual world has led me back to the real world and how wonderful it's been. And um, and I in the pandemic in the pandemic, I mean, I am so grateful for the virtual world. It allowed me to expand so many different parts of me, meet so many people that I would not have the opportunity to meet under really any circumstances that I could think of. Um, they've been all around the world and our relationship. I think because of the intentionality of getting on to Zoom for a particular purpose and speaking to people who are, you know, relatively like-minded or certainly to whom you have a lot to talk about. And some of those have developed into relationships. And I spent the past year traveling and meeting a lot of these people. Um, really? It, yeah, for it, to a large, I wanted to see what their shoes looked like. And, um, and I've been having a, just the most incredible year doing that. And what I've learned is that the, one of the things that I've learned, because there's so many, I mean, it's been an incredible experience, um, is that the basis that I've been able to form online is it's almost as deep as the relationships that I have with like historical friends from, you know, from my youth. It's really, really there. But, there, and I won't say what, and there is nothing like meeting them at the airport and being in their presence. You yeah. know, there's just nothing in the world like it. There's nothing like being in their homes and, and um, you know, sitting on a sofa and drinking tea. And it, it's um, it's been extraordinary. So I think that, that both is just, that both and, that both and mm -hmm. is just a beautiful thing. And as far as the virtual world, I am ultimately grateful and of course there are a million other parts of it that are ultimately terrifying and but really the way that it's led me back to this incredible appreciation of being in the presence of a human being well how about that well that's wonderful and um you know it just makes me think of the concept of non-local space and how you know we really can connect with somebody on the other side of the world and um, maybe it's not as good because, you know, that exterior is not there and it's, a, you know, whatever vibes are sort of lo locally based. But the actual second person that is the mutual understanding and the connection is uh, certainly adequate. And uh, when you consider the scale that is possible, it's astonishing. So, yeah, it's it's really cool to hear your experience with working with, you know, both of those and the difference there. All right, Arthur. Oh, hi, Jeff. Um, I had a quick question on what are your thoughts on um, Peter Diamis and his thoughts on abundance and how exponential technology is going to could create abundance with within like food, education, healthcare, and stuff like that yeah. for everyone. 
Yeah, um, it, it's actually part of the discussion that panel with Elon Musk and Netanyahu and those guys, uh, they talked a, a bit about that, that it will be uh, that it's going to be one of the challenges of the future is what, you know, every, you know, we talk about agriculture at every stage of development. We think that it's going to, you know, all the hunters are going to go out of business. All the farmers are going to go out of business. All the industrial go out of business. But there's always going to be a new uh, you know, more jobs created, so to speak. That may not be true this time because of what you're saying, that they're, uh, you know, superabundance. The idea that it's really not that hard to create material wealth, food, you know, healthcare, uh, money, you know, objects. We have that down pretty well. And of course, we're getting better and better at it. But with AI, will we be in a world that would be uh, our ancestors would consider heaven in a sense. I and mean, we might even, where we don't have to work, we get whatever we want. It's, not, it's like they were talking about on the panel. It's not universal basic income. It's universal high income. You know, people can have really whatever they want. And that is, that's the direction that we're going with. If the trajectory of the uh, creation of material wealth, uh, you know, the efficiency of that continues and AI looks like it'll be a, a major phase change there. So then the question is, in a world where our identity has been so tied with what we do for a living, what do we do? What's our identity? And we saw some of that. Uh, I saw it in my own life with retirement and the pandemic and having too little to do. You know, what's my motivation for getting off the couch if I have everything I need and I don't have to go anywhere and it's all on Zoom or whatever, you know? So that this will be the next challenge for humanity. And I think we'll get through it and look back and say, wow, remember when people had to work for a living? How brutal that must have been. How, you know, what a drag. And now look at us, you know, we're all just playful and having fun and creating. And, you know, I don't know, hopefully something like that. It's, it's what we've got to, you know, sort of deal with. You're describing Star Trek. There you go. People remind me of that all the time. And I... um and I've never watched Star Trek. I mean, it's I, I got to get with it. I've seen some of the movies and stuff, but yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I, I just uh, reflect on uh, Alan Watts. You know, a personal, you know, bias towards Alan. I, I love his teachings, and he postulated this thing with a group of uh, geneticists when they were deciding whether to breed, you know, the best breed of humans. And Alan postulated to them, he, he said, well, if everyone was the same, we'd be all batshit crazy bored. And so I kind of see this AI and this whole, you know, abundance thing as being nothing at all. It's everything and nothing at the same time. And human beings will never fundamentally change their nature until their consciousness evolves at an individual level. And so, you know, I kind of see that we'd have more of the same. We'd still have, if everyone had super abundance, our human conditioning would still run the show until it doesn't. And well, so yeah, that's, 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 that's the postulation here. Uh, until everyone goes off in a cave and meditates their way into awareness, and uh, you know, and then and then we'd all be in bliss and have nirvana on Earth, and we wouldn't care whether we had money or we didn't. Yep. So it's never the object; it's always yep. us. Yeah. Well, and, I think uh, there'll probably awesome. be some some stages in between those, but yeah, I, I, I'm of basically course. right there with you. And the one thing that sticks with me from what you said is it's the one thing that human beings just can't tolerate. We can tolerate suffering. We can tolerate all kinds of things, but not boredom. Yeah, we just boredom. get, we'll get busy with something. 
Well, I would, you know, I'm always like the polarities person. So there's a tendency for us to sometimes want to just, um, like those of us who know development, it's easy for us sometimes to fall into the polarity or the pull of relaxing into change. It's like, it's, it's happening, um, you know, it's always happened. People figured it out. We'll figure it out. We'll see how, you know, we'll see how it goes. I'm sure things will be just fine. There's that. And then also I like the other side, which is the Enneagram 6 uh, view, which is we have to plan and prepare and strategize and, and make sure that nothing terribly bad goes wrong. So, you know, to so we kind of have to do both. You know, we have to relax and not get all panicky. Like speaking of the virtual world, there are a lot of people who have also not joined the virtual world at all. Like, like I said before, that I know people who don't know what streaming is, or they don't know what Amazon Prime is, or they don't know what Instagram is, or Facebook is, or have never even seen that kind of thing. And, and that, to me, that's super scary as well. Yeah. That I don't want to become some kind of a Luddite in, in, and just not know how to manage the virtual world and make discerning choices around what's healthy for me and what's not. So yeah. it's both. It's like, don't completely be a Luddite, <laughs> but also don't be so engrossed in it that you lose connection with the real world. So yeah. doing both. Um, and I think the thing with AI that is always a concern is with any kind of technology or with any kind of new emerging thing, this is why I think development is so important is because who has access to, like what level of consciousness is doing what with what's new and emergent? So like an old, going back to 9-11 that um, Jonathan Hyde spoke about, it was a shock to the kind of the global system and it did sort of unite the global system. We kind of thought that January 6th might have done it uh, in the US to some degree, like that looked so horrible. We thought that, oh my God, finally, these kind of conspiracy theorists and whoever might like get a wake up call. It hasn't happened. I agree in some ways that in some odd way, 9-11 might have some truth, that 9-11 example. But like 9-11, you had primitive mindset, access to orange technology and look what happened, right? So I think this is why as integralists, we do want to mold development to some degree and not just let it take its course, although that is going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I think we can also bring some structure and order and vision to that. Absolutely. And I think we are to uh, I mean, it's it, the the analogy I think of is the analogy of uh, for most of human history, the life was about the search for calories. And all of a sudden, about a hundred years ago, we developed an industrial food production system that provides so many calories that the big problem now is diabetes and obesity and the problems of overeating for you know, not everybody in the world, but for a whole lot of people in the world. And, and then so there's this uh, awareness that comes up that, uh, you know, I just can't eat everything I want. And there is a, there's a category of junk food that is addictive and I can, you know, I, I can't help myself, but I need to. And so 
that search for calories is analogous to another fundamental search for human beings, and that is contact and information. We just that's just built into us. And so when we can get all the information we want, and I notice this myself, I can sit there and scroll for an hour and a half and just completely lose track of time because I'm just taking in information. And it, everyone gives me a little, you know, a couple molecules of dopamine. And that feels good. It's, you know, it's like eating a potato chip. Uh, but at some point we get hip to that. And I think people are. Uh, there are uh, schools and so forth where kids give their phones to the teacher. And and, and there are young people who um, are taking breaks and fasts from social media. Of course, there's the people you're talking about too, Namali, who just never got into it in the first place. Except when I went back home to Western Pennsylvania, I did notice that the Amish guy in his horse and carriage had a cell phone. You know, so there is, you know, you don't know what they're sneaking. <laughs> Jeff, uh, I'm just going to throw something in here if it's okay. Sorry to, sorry to jump in. Yes, again. go go ahead. One of, the, one of the things that I see with my clients and that I do differently to let's say therapy is, you know, when we're talking about let's say devices, you know, um, social media or phones or even if we're talking about addictions like alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, you know, what I see that's a little different, I don't see any of those as negative in any way, shape or form because what most people are trying to do when they go to the bar to have six pints is they're trying to become present to themselves. And so they're actually trying to use a distraction to escape the polarity of distraction. Yeah. And so they're becoming entirely present. And that's what we we really need as a, as a community. It's just the vehicle they're using yeah. is perhaps not entirely uh, productive, but the deep intention is to become present. Yeah. And so I just thought I'd throw that spin in there. Yeah. No, it's a good point. And it's, you know, basically the the um, definition of addiction, if you will, is, is this a plus or minus for your life? Uh, for some people, drinking is a plus. It was for me till it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so how much time do I really want to, you know, spend clicking like a Skinner pigeon on my, you know, phone? Uh, and how much do I, you know, what else? So, you know, awareness and um, and a lot of what's, you know, just the awareness that people people are getting hip to it. Hopefully, you know, it's always going to be ahead of us. Like I said, emergence loves us to be on edge, apparently. And so here we are. This is the edge we're on. So anyways, thank you all. See you next time. <laughs>